0: Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our member event with directors Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafsson, directors of the stunning animated feature Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Guillermo and Mark sat down with Edgar Wright for a discussion about the film's remarkable craftsmanship, how they adapted the fairy tale and their golden rules for animation. We hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Um, I'm going to pull my chair around so I can see you probably actually. Um, I just want to start, I mean, well, number one, as I'm sure everybody will agree, what an incredible piece of work that is. And then like just, uh, I only saw it this morning, but I, I I agree, let me say, I agreed to do the Q&A without having seen it because I knew it was going to be great, but it was better even than I imagined it would be, I don't know why that is, but it's just such an ornate, extraordinary detailed piece of work, and we'll sort of get into the macro of how exactly you make a film like that because it kind of boggles the mind, I think for most people in the room um I was going to start with talking about your relationship to Pinocchio, both the book and the and any previous adaptation. I was going to tell you um I was going to shock you by uh My relationship to the Disney one is that my dad took me and my brother to a double bill of The Cat from Outer Space and Disney's Pinocchio in the late 70s. And because my dad was really terrible at timing, like before the end of Pinocchio, he came in and said, oh, we've got to pick up mum and (laughs) took us out. I have never seen the end of Disney's Pinocchio. (laughs) To this day? To this day. So I accept this version as canon now. This is the ending (laughs) of the film. But let, t- tell me both about your relationship with the original material or any previous adaptation. Well, I have a very
1: sad relationship with it because my parents wouldn't let me watch it. There was a lot of things they didn't allow me to watch. So I came to it very late in life. Uh, and so all I knew about it was it was this boy who wanted to be real, a wooden boy. And, and, you know, he had to be good in order to, to be real. And, You know, I wasn't that interested in that story. But the way that uh, Patrick and Guillermo sort of twisted around, like, it really made it interesting for me.
2: I saw it really early, and it was one of the first things I saw with my mom. The first one I saw was Wuthering Heights, and uh, I fell asleep. But I was terrified. (laughs) I woke up, and I was even more terrified because there was a storm, and I remember snippets, and then... This must have been amongst the first 10 films I saw with my mom on the re-release. Disney used to re-release these things every decade. And um, it was very scary for me, the Disney one. And it was also very moving that the world felt very scary. And as a kid, I felt the world was a very scary place. I still think that way, but um, it also moved me that Pinocchio seemed to be perpetually on the verge of disappointing people, because I felt that way too. <laughs> so it was very emotional and through the years, my mom gave me uh, Pinocchios and I spoke about doing it in claymation. And uh, I failed miserably, my first animations uh, were with a uh, camera that didn't have frame by frame. And then I continued with stop motion and we'll talk about stop motion in a minute, about or relationship with that, but uh, I wanted to do it. I wanted to make a disobedient Pinocchio, mm-hmm. that where disobedience was a virtue, as opposed to, so it evolved through the years, and then all of a sudden after Devil's Backbone and uh, Pan's Labyrinth, I thought maybe I can set it in a time where obedience is expected, and it evolved from there onto what we have now.
0: Well, let's talk about your, both of your relationships to stop motion. I mean, um, obviously, Mark, you have a, a long history in that field with claymation and stop motion. And Guillermo, I often feel, before you started doing animation as well, that your, your live-action films feel like animation.
2: A lot of that. Let's start with you.
1: All right, well, yeah, I've been doing this my whole life, actually. Literally right out of school. Uh, I went to school to study graphic design, but I was so bad at it. And I hated it, and so I started making films instead because that felt like fun. And and um, all my teachers uh, couldn't judge them very well. No, they, had, they just thought the fact that you did anything was absolutely magical. So uh, it was sort of an easy out. And then I became exposed to Will Venton, the, the claymation folks. They were in Portland, which was where I lived. And I did an apprenticeship there, and uh, I looked at all these guys playing with dolls, and getting paid for it. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't have to grow up. So I've got to figure out how to get into this. And, uh, and so I just slowly, slowly, when I came on as a PA, and then worked my way up and then eventually made my own film, uh, which, <laughs> you know, this is a little embarrassing. It was called Three Constipated Gargoyles Reaching Critical Mass at Ground Zero. <laughs> I'll bet you can actually tell the, what the whole story was <laughs> just from the title, uh, but that's sort of what, what what got me into it. And then they saw my, you know, that oh, like, you know, he has some potential in this, and I just hung was, hung in there. And then, you know, 35 years later, the phone rang and it was Guillermo.
2: No, but you, you also did some of the great films in the medium, like uh, you know the the claymation sequence on Return to Oz.
1: Yeah, that and there was a um, there was a sequence in uh, Moonlighting. You remember that show with Bruce yeah. Willis? I did this sequence where we turned him into, into a frog. A yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that was my first exposure to like Hollywood, and I remember meeting.
2: Uh, <laughs> and then, then you did a beautiful, uh, fantastic Mr. Fox.
1: Fantastic Mr. Fox was a great experience. We shot that here in the UK. Um, yeah, that was about. Two years uh, worth of work. And yeah, it really cut my teeth on that. Um, and that really put me in a great position to uh, work with Guillermo uh, on Pinocchio.
2: I think animation has always occupied my mind more than anything. And I, I, I've called this, I mean, it's been a, a life, lifetime detour into coming back to it. I started in it in Super 8. I did terrible, I was not patient. But uh, before Kronos, I was going to do an, uh, an animated movie because uh, um, uh, my then wife's parents thought Hollywood was immoral and film business was sinful. I thought, what if I do animation? <laughs> Surely the clay figures uh, are free of sin. So <laughs> we built 120-something figures over three years, my, my young brother, my, my then girlfriend, and, and I. And we started shooting. It was an old man on a stone. I started animating it and uh, it was moving. And we started getting really excited. We left one night to see a Buñuel movie that was playing on TV and have dinner. And when we came back, they had somebody had burglarized the studio and destroyed every puppet was stomped to the ground. They had defecated and peed all over the studio and destroyed the camera. So I said, you know, I guess I'm going to do that that live-action chronos.
1: Got you ready for Hollywood, though. <laughs> the other,
2: yeah. And then I worked with the Weinsteins, and it was a little worse than that. But uh, I started the stop-motion movement in my hometown. Uh, I had two Mitchell NCs, and I had the optical sets, and I had a studio to shoot stop-motion. And we did uh, commercials in stop-motion and claymation. Uh, one of them, which was completely uh, closed Mondays, badly done, which is a Benton short. And uh, you know, then uh, I did my features and the, the, my cameras went to the people that uh, did animation. And all the way to now, those cameras were in service. And um, I've been supporting the stop motion movement in, in my hometown in Mexico. To this day, there's a large sequence in here that is shot in Guadalajara, Mexico by Mexican animators. And uh, I have two scholarships act- active for animation in Mexico and so forth. And I think uh, about 10 years ago, I started a detour with the DreamWorks, and I went and I produced and consulted on Puss and Boots, on Kung Fu Panda 2, 3. We did a series called Troll Hunters, so, uh, Wizards and 3 Below, that formed a trilogy, blah, blah, blah. And that's what got us to Pinocchio, because um, everybody said no. But Netflix have gotten very good results with uh, Tales of Arcadia, and I pitched it, the last resort was the only time. And I said, no, they don't do stop motion. So they're going to say no. And I pitched it to Ted Sanders, and he said yes immediately in the room. So that's why we have this.
0: Well, I was going to ask, I mean, uh, about the exact time that you first called Mark. I mean, you can tell that it was a long process making this movie because I've never seen the credit at the end
1: production babies before. Yeah. <laughs> How many babies?
2: How many were there? You-
1: uh, there was an army of them. Actually, some of them even wound up having children. It, the
0: production was so long. <laughs> so but you first baby. made the call to Mark 15
2: years ago? About 2008, 2009, I think. Somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. and we, we met and, we, and, and we, got, we got rejections all the way. I mean, it's fantastic. I call Hollywood the land of the slow no, which is terrifying. And, and everybody's excited. Everybody loves. I had one phone call on uh, one series I was developing and they said, we love the screenplay. We're so excited. And then an hour of notes followed and I said, let me get this straight. You are very excited about it. You hate everything <laughs> about it. So it took a long time to get this one.
0: Well, you were, I, I saw you talking about it earlier. You were saying that it was like a yes from every, everybody and then a no. So talk about the things that are in this adaptation that they did object to. Well,
2: they heard uh, Guillermo del Toro and they say, we're in. And then I went and said, well, it's going to take place during the time of Mussolini. Pinocchio is going to die several times. And uh, basically, it's about uh, Geppetto losing a son." And, and they said, sort of, thank you. Goodbye. And, and uh, we believe, I think everybody that is involved with this movie believes that animation is film. That animation is an art. That uh, it should be considered in the same uh, level ground as uh, live action. It's a very different proposition because we capture it. Uh, or provoke the accident or the, the feeling of life in live action. But here you have to create it. Nothing that happens is happening. And to animate is to give anima, to give soul to something. And you're doing the wind, the stones that move, a pebble that falls, uh, a mistake that the character makes, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So it's it really, to propose it in Hollywood is to propose it to a town that understand it as a genre for kids. And they try to and even that is misunderstood. They try to homogenize and pasteurize everything. And fortunately for us, uh, troll hunters we went to very dark places. And we went to places that that really confronted the audience and all that. I started doing the thing about failed acts on troll hunters to, to animate characters that made mistakes. And uh, and and Netflix knew what we were trying to. Do so they supported that version.
0: Well, the irony is, is that the best of children's literature and children's films, and Disney ones as well back in the day, are dealing with weighty topics. And so, you know, this movie is is a great way for children to learn about, you know, loss and grief and you know, existential themes and 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 that is the sort of that is the great stuff of, of uh classic children's films and literature.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean I think kids uh, according not to me, but to development psychologists, to, uh, th- this is the way you symbolically solve the world. As a kid, you put it together and the simplistic, if you make the world simplistic, you're lying to the kids. And uh, when people say, I say it's not for kids, but kids can watch it if their parents talk to them. You know, it's it's very important. It's, it, it can promote a dialogue of where peanut the hamster went or, or where grandma went, or whatever. What is this war that is teetering on the world extension right now? Or why is the pandemic so terrible? I mean, this is these are not exactly relaxing times.
0: Well, so with the recent Italian elections, you probably about as as prescient as it could get. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting. You know, the the notion of everyone. You know, walking in lockstep, and then Pinocchio being the one character who sort of challenges that. I was, there is a bridge, and I saw this, my wife told me about this episode of QI, where uh, they were talking about a bridge here in London called the Albert Bridge. And the the soldiers used to have to uh, cross it to get to the barracks on the other side. And there's a plaque at the end of that bridge that says, Essentially, soldiers, please do not walk in lockstep, and the reason, of course, is if they did that, they could destroy the bridge. And I just thought, what a fantastic analogy for the danger of walking in lockstep in a you know in a system. You know, you can bring it down. You know, there are real dangers to that, and our Pinocchio challenges that. Uh, and yeah, that was a very interesting aspect.
2: The idea was to turn the basic tenets of the Pinocchio fable on its ear. Like it's about disobedience, being a virtue, it's about obedience being a virtue. It's about you not turning into a real boy, but being who you are and being loved like that. There's a fantastic sequence for me where the only lie that you shouldn't have is lie about yourself. But I love when Geppetto and the cricketer lie, lie, lie a little more so we can escape. It's because it's not about that, it's about uh, uh, the way that he presents himself, he changes the people around him. It's the opposite of the regular fable where they change him by teaching him. He teaches the cricket, humility, empathy, love. He teaches Geppetto that perfection is not great, that imperfection is desirable. And there's and then there's a bunch of lapsed Catholic stuff on top of that, and it's fathers and sons, including Jesus and the guy that sent him in, you know, <laughs> And, uh, and you can see the echoes all through the movie. It's a movie constructed in symmetry. So the opening mirrors are the closing. Uh, there are father and son stories that mirror each other. Uh, the Christ is missing the same arm than Pinocchio at the end when he rescues Geppetto. Uh, the color coding is very careful in, in uh, rhyming across. Death has a sister, that is life. And they look exactly the same and they... Are impassive, blah blah blah. So it's constructed very much in pairs.
0: Yeah, I understand stop motion animation probably in the same way that I used to do it with my Super 8 camera, and I understand how probably when you were starting out, and I understand the Will Vincent claymation, and I understand as a Brit, I understand Peter Lord doing Morph, and everybody, I'm sure, tried to copy that, but talk to me about the advances in stop motion in the last in the 15 years you've been talking about it because what i look at there which boggles my mind is like how you do the very cinematic photography on top of the stop motion please explain that to me because i i will look at it and i marvel at it and i don't quite understand it in the best
1: way well that's good <laughs> i mean it's it, a magic it's trick a, for me yeah, exactly it should be the uh, you know yeah the technology has advanced uh, people are Pushing forward, like Leica has done a lot of work to sort of help push the uh, stop motion to a certain, uh, you know, really, really uh, technically perfect level. And we used, we're standing on their shoulders. We used a lot of what they pioneered, but I think in in a way we kind of backed off just a little bit as well because we were looking for something a little bit different. Uh, you know, just all these advances in Obviously, motion control, uh, which makes the camera movement uh, easier to do, it's still a real pain in the ass. Uh, and we, you know you have to do multiple, multiple passes, but the camera can just go right back there. You know, and we have the advantage of shooting one frame at a time, so we have complete control over everything. But that's also obviously a curse as well. Uh, one of the things technology is advances the the mechanics inside the puppets faces and uh, rather than do printing of the faces where you you come out with a kit uh, a catalog of faces to give the animators for the most part for most of the characters in this film we use mechanical faces and the reason that we did that was because we wanted to give more of the control over the performance back to the animator it's because the real magic the intimacy between is the intimacy between the animator and the puppet and that happens behind the curtain and that happens one frame at a time and you have to be able to have the flexibility to change uh, you know as you're shooting and we trusted our animators we went out and we got the best and we worked with them and we also gave them uh we said look you can make mistakes. Here's what we want. If there's something better, if you can take a chance, go ahead and take a chance. So we didn't want them animating with fear, because I think that's I think that kills animation. You you you'll make the safest choices. We didn't want that. I think the way we got at some of these really beautiful, intimate moments between the characters was to bring the animators back in to the process in a much more intimate way.
2: I think there are two things that may be curious to you to know. One of them is the cinematography of it. It's done in passes. So if you have a a key light, you shoot a frame only with the key light. Then if you have a fill or a moving light, you do another another frame with that alone. And uh, if we have Frank Passingham who did the cinematography has a, a gobo that is mechanized along with the motion control frame by frame. So you do that pass separate, and then you sandwich everything together, and you have the, the light the way you see it. So this is not at all an analogy to live action. It actually makes the composition uh, have flexibility. You can say a little more fill light, a little less fill light, uh, and you, you get a lot of control on that, and, and color correcting becomes extremely important even more so than in uh, live action. And uh, that's one, one thing. And you synchronize that with the motion control, et cetera. The other thing is that we uh, created based basically, there's a line of uh, Miyazaki where he says, if you animate the ordinary in a film, it'll become extraordinary. Because uh, the, the thing that I dislike in animation, and I'm a student and a passionate collector of animation, but the things I don't like that we have arrived is it has been ciphered into almost emoji-like key poses that rob everything of humanity. Every character is cool and hip and happening and very valley. Uh, the kids are all smart and one eyebrow is up and their hands are crossed and there's all a whole language of shopping mall brats, so to speak. <laughs> And, and, and we wanted to move completely away from key posing and bring humanity. We made the characters make failed acts 24 frames a second. So you must have seen it in the film, how they stumble. Pinocchio goes for a pencil and it doesn't have any lead. So he grabs another pencil. Uh, Geppetto wakes up in the morning and slides on the step because he's a little drunk. Those mistakes don't happen. We request them. And we request, can you do that failed act? Can you make him land with a pain on his knee? And we always, every time we we turned over to animators together, and we would say, every time you want to try something, try it. But every time you can give us failed acts or two movements more than you need, and, and we said, what is the character thinking? What is the character feeling? And how do I know that? Without pantomime. We didn't want pantomime. So these are things that over a period of a 1,000 days of shoot were observed 100% of the time. So that cumulative moves the characters from pantomime to real acting. And it is, if we did our job right, well, there's a point in this movie where you are not watching puppets, you're watching actors. And that makes a, an enormous difference. And it's part of the adulting of animation in 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 a big industrial scale, if you
1: want. I'll say this. Like I've said it a thousand times. So I'll say it again. Seeing a character think, like having the camera on a character who's not talking and watching them process information that they're being given, that's gold. That is all of a sudden your audience just goes, "This is real. This I can see this character thinking," and then they accept that character. Well. I-
0: just to expand on that, what I was amazed to read in the production notes is your your eight directives that you gave the team. And I'll just read them out. And if there's ones you want to speak on more, that is you know some of them that you already have. But so the your eight commandments that you gave to your entire team was animate silence. This is exactly what you were just saying. Animate mistakes, animate, throw away physical truth. Well, that's uh,
2: That means things that you that we like when we sat down, they put the glass here, right? What did I do? Did I leave it there? No, I moved it. Is it necessary for the story? No, but it's necessary for me not to stumble on it. So we do it. So, life, uh, to, to convey life, uh, you can scratch your neck, you can rub your knee. Every one of us is doing something unnecessary right now. It, it is. Uh, and, and the body language needs to respond to that. So, that's throwaway gestures that are okay. not in point. The problem with animation is everything is in point. Yeah. And you never see a character listening if it's not a reaction shot. You never, like one thing we did that is extremely daring is shoot quiet scenes. They're sitting on a bench and you, you pay attention to the gestures. That's almost never done. Not but, in Western animation.
1: Yeah. Well, you have to have faith in your animators for that because all of a sudden there's, not, there's no distractions. It's all, it's all right here. And it, it's got to land. It's similar to—I mean, this is what
0: you. This is less about listening and more about avoidance. Don't always make eye contact.
2: Well, when you when you direct an actor in real life, you can say, "Eye contact is sixty percent of our language." When you when you say, "No, no, no, I really mean it," that 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 told you exactly they don't mean it, Uh, or withhold the the eyes. I'm okay with it, (laughs) so that they they're not okay with it. So to treat the eye contact not as something that in animation everybody's making eye contact with everybody and, and that robs that it's also
1: part of this notion that um what what's really interesting is the difference between what a character is saying and what you see in their face sometimes it's the same thing but you know when it's not it's really interesting because that's how we all work you know we've got secret agendas. And if you can actually convey that in a puppet, that's pretty magical.
2: And and the throwaway gesture, there's one that I want to because I hopefully you will remember it uh, are things that seem not needed, but the the movie is color corrected. So red symbolizes war, doom, and it comes in very pointedly. And blue connects with Pinocchio, the life giver, the cricket, it connects everything that is extraordinary and it's linked to Pinocchio. And when Geppetto enters the abandoned arena and there's floating balloons, and he swats a a red one, he doesn't need to bump it, but we said, bump it with your shoulder. And then the blue one gets tangled on him, and, and he has to fight it because that's what we do when we get tangled with a balloon. Was it necessary? No. But he's fighting a balloon that symbolizes the magic and the connection with him, and that's the balloon that points him at what is in the poster so these are unnecessary because we could have done it differently in the direct way that animations always stays in point but this is much more life you know
0: i think the next two you've covered is is uh, select pants and mine carefully and seek life but explain this next one animation is spatially symphonic
2: well what we mean is uh, normally the bad animation is a medium shot in medium shot If <laughs> you know what i mean is. It's a proscenium and the characters move there. But we orchestrated with the camera moving in a dance with the characters. The way you orchestrate with live actors on a dolly, a steady camera, a jib, we we move the camera and the actors for the drama, you know? And and the other thing is it can be hyperkinetic animation. Everybody's moving because they're paying for it. And the camera's moving because it's cooler. And we didn't want to do that.
1: We also wanted to avoid just shoe leather. You know, like if a character is moving from one place to another, there's a reason we're showing that, and maybe we learn something in in that motion. Well, this is, speaks to that as well, is and also David
0: Bradley's amazing performance. Age informs movement.
2: Yeah, well, if you notice, Pinocchio uh, has no control of his body when we start. He's basically trying to figure it out, and little by little, he ages into an eleven or twelve year old. And his movement gains control. And Geppetto, uh, we had young Geppetto.
1: <laughs> yes, young Geppetto. Yeah, he was a little bit more um, virile, and uh, we made sure that he he felt like a, a younger man in his in his movement. And then years later in the film, you know, we, we really we nailed him with arthritis and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, he he had a more difficult time. He, you know, from an audio point of view, it's like, you know, he, uh, this it reminds me of my father. Because my dad had uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and he had very bad when I was a kid. And he would he would get up from the, the chair, and it would be like, Argh! You know, he would make these big productions out of it. Because he hurt. He was in pain. And I was in school, and I remember, you know, I was like, a, I don't know, like twelve, 10, 12-year-old kid, and I would get up out of my chair at school, and I would go, ah! yeah you know i didn't hurt but it was like i had been conditioned to think that that's what you did (laughs) so they thought i was an old man even in school just talk me through like
0: the stages of it in terms of like the call is 15 years ago but then in terms of actually making the movie what is the first part that you do design storyboards the voice what comes first
2: well we one thing i learned uh quickly at dreamworks and that it in live action is not even a question for me, is don't start until you have a great screenplay. And in animation, you, they start with a lot of bad screenplays and they try to solve them in storyboards. And I said, Patrick and I will go away and we'll, we'll come back. And we came back with a screenplay, we read it out loud and it was not perfect. So I went back and rewrote it. Uh, and until we had a screenplay that we loved, we didn't start the process. I mean, there was a, st- a couple of storyboarded sequences, the one with the whale that took 50 hours to solve, and, and you know, things that we were experimenting with, but which is why he eats the little yes. <laughs> the Yeah, little I mean, we had a
1: very solid base with the script. That's yeah. not to say that, you know, as we boarded it and cut the animatic, we didn't discover things. That's inevitable. And in fact, uh, the pandemic, in some ways, served us well, because it gave us time to sort of marinate in the, in the story a little bit and really look at it and hone it and I think make it better.
0: Well, um, And then at what stage did the voice recordings come? And is there any element where, I know like the classics or Disney animators would hire like models and stuff to do movements and stuff. There's, there's none of that, right? You just have
1: the voice. Yeah, we just have the voice. But our animators shoot uh, film of, them, of themselves yeah, yeah, and them of that. other animators. We we had people who were very good at certain characters. We had we had uh, Charles who was he was our Geppetto. I mean he just just had it down, you know. And we had uh, some people who were very good at Pinocchio, you know, very good at Pinocchio in action sequences. And oh, then we Volpe. yes, Volpe. Yeah, we had we had people who were uh, you know very good with more flamboyant animations. So we tried to cast people. Uh, the animators and and keep them with that character as much as we could and keep them within scenes so that they would have some ownership of these scenes because you know when you're an animator there 's nothing like seeing a, a string of shots that you did, and you know it really they invest themselves even more when they know that you know we 're thinking about that as well what what is what is the
0: element of trial and error when actually shooting i mean i know I keep asking. Questions that might just land. I'm staying the obvious, but just in terms of like animating performance, in terms of 24 frames
1: per second.
2: Well, how many how many takes
1: do you do in if at all? Or how does that work? We occasionally do another take, but we try and do as much homework beforehand as possible. Yeah, rehearsal take, which is usually pretty rough. You know, we don't we didn't have the luxury that someone like Leica they'll do a full single-frame rehearsal of the whole thing, show it to the directors, and then get notes. We didn't have that luxury. But we had really good animators, and we had the best direction in the world.
2: We, 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 had, the thing. we had the thing that um, uh, we, we did change our minds. Like, in the middle of Volpe's number, uh, there was a gag that was not working, and that was completely substituted by a different gag. We had to re-reshoot it. Uh, but when the pandemic happened, we rethought the escape from the dogfish quite a bit and uh, you know, made it a little more uh, connected to Pinocchio Lying and things like that. So we just one thing that doesn't happen in animation, what happened here is uh, we were meeting on the final stages and I called Mark and I said, what if we use Bolte as the villain? He was not the villain. He was one character that came and went. And that meant substituting dozens of puppets for him. for the, you know, Just so you understand, or maybe you understand exactly how it's shot, but it was a thousand days of shoot, but 65 units shooting at the same time at the end. So if in, if in 30 of those scenes, there is a Pinocchio, there has to be one Pinocchio in each unit. And if he's talking to Geppetto, there has to be a Geppetto in each unit. And they're all working at the same time, and plus the Geppettos that have fallen in the battlefield and repair. So changing the character means, I, mean, I but George took it in stride. Yeah.
1: yeah, and the, you mentioned something here that reminds me that the real magic trick to this whole film was scheduling. It's crazy trying to schedule something like this. You can imagine 60 plus units shooting at the same time, tracking all those puppets, all those animals, all Not those dogs. costumes. It's just crazy, You you come up with this insane matrix uh and then every day and you look at it and you go in and at, by the end of the day it has completely fallen apart. It's but you know that that is that is what happens. So reinvent it again every day. I didn't think that but we had a genius, <laughs> Jared, uh who could do that and keep all these I have no idea how I did it really. I'll just do two more things before I run off and give it over to you guys. But
0: um We'll talk about that in terms of like creating your own studio because it sounds like what you did is essentially create the supergroup of all your favorite animators
1: and people working in animation. Would that be the case?
2: That's, That's, with Shadow
1: Machine. Yeah, with Shadow Machine. Um, you know, they, they were fantastic. They had exactly the right attitude toward this thing.
2: And they, we, had, we had the best producers in the world. Yes. Also in, in them with Shadow Machine.
1: And, and I think there was something wonderful about this because we formed this whole unit just for this movie. It wasn't, you know, uh, sort of being plugged into a pre-existing system. So we got to reinvent everything. We got to look at the way everybody else worked and go, no, I understand that, but that's sort of an institutional thing, and it doesn't serve our purposes. So it was much more like uh, when I started out where we were in a garage. I mean, we weren't technically here. It was vastly bigger than that, but it felt that way, and I think everybody felt that as well. So it was much, it was much more fun.
2: And the people, they normally they can like if you have a sequence, normally one animator does one close-up and the other one does a wide shot. And here we try to unify and say this this animator is great with emotion, this animator is great with action. And in the course of a thousand days, you get to, and in some cases, which is not ordinary, we gave the whole sequence to an animator. Like there was a Brazilian animator, Tiago, that entered. Uh, his first day into limbo with the Sphinx and Pinocchio and he never left limbo for the entire production. He stayed there. The, the, the Sphinx was a very large puppet and very ungainly and he figured it out and we couldn't afford refiguring it out. The final scene on the beach when, when Geppetto has Pinocchio, that was one single animator. And in some instances we thought that's the only way to do it because to keep track of where the character was emotionally a shot ago with a new animator would have been impossible.
1: And we, we had one animator who did those bedroom sequences, which I love. They're, they're just beautiful, but he spent two years in a, a bedroom, a tiny bed. I mean, you know, it was not even six feet across. That's where he went every day to this little bedroom.
2: And, and if I may, there was, uh, there's a shot in the movie where an animator came in and did two shots. One of them is Spazzatura crossing the carnival, and we went through three or four puppets, and it took about 16 to 18 weeks, just that shot.
1: Yeah, that's the thing, these puppets break down. I mean, especially when you animate them kind of aggressively, and that's why we have the puppet hospital, but that scene he's talking about, literally, Spazzatura, he starts running, and he gets maybe a third of the way through, and he's just hashed, you know? And so you have to bring in a new one, and bring in a new
2: one, uh, the puppets are like England, and the animators are like Boris Johnson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My last question, and this is obviously speaks to like where we are right now at Directors UK, but talk about co-directing. Yeah.
2: Well, I think I, I, I've been doing it since uh, Trollhunters, and I really enjoy it. And I think uh, we have great compatibility on Instincts. They may be different, but they attune really well.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know the chance to uh, (laughs) to direct alongside someone like Guillermo is uh, you know that doesn't come along very often. Uh, So I learned so much from him every day, and he learned from me every other week. Yeah, Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. no, it was it was really. I mean, I've been I've been a fan of this guy since I was a kid, and his work for me is legendary, and I think uh, this is not just lip service. Uh, the last few weeks of production uh, when we were in the color correction or in the sound mix, uh, you know, it was like uh, twins. We just, we didn't even need to to check, but the other thing, we knew we were in sync and that's that's really a testament to this production, which was, nobody wanted to live. Nobody, and, and we had anxiety, separation anxiety. No, but uh, normally in a movie this long, people hate each other by the forget about
1: 1,000 days, uh, they, <laughs> day 50. You know? Yeah, it's true. We're, um, the, I miss it already. It's, it was my family, and I think everyone uh, felt the same way because I think we felt like we were working on something special. Well, I'm going to F off and leave you to these guys, but
0: I do want to say it's Mark's birthday, but do not sing happy birthday to him. <laughs> He's already had it three times today, and he hates it. But uh, I just want to thank Guillermo del Toro and Marcus Debson and what an incredible film and now ask any question you want to ask.
2: Thank you to Evgar, man. Thank you.
0: This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.